Hello, this is Joe Abercrombie. You are listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room. No doubt yes. you've been asked and talked about Grimdark on occasion. Your Twitter handle is Lord Grimdark. Uh, uh, oh, no, yeah. why? Why? Did I- <laughs> why did you choose that one? No. At the time that I did that, it was completely self-evidently a joke, it seemed to me. Because, you know, at that time, Grimdark as a word was where I had seen it used. It wasn't being used very much, but where I had seen it used, it was you know, purely as a, as a way of taking the piss. It was as a criticism. You know, if someone talked about Grimdark, they meant that something was rubbish. Uh, they meant something was so pessimistic and gory and ridiculous and over the top that you could not but laugh at it. You know, it became risible, in effect. So it was always a criticism. So people would say, you know, things along the lines of, well, Abercrombie's Grimdark, but, you know, Game of Thrones isn't Grimdark because that's good. You know, so that was the difference. Grimdark was something that was bad. And so, by calling myself Lord Grimdark, I was hoping to have a hilarious laugh at myself. You know, the self-effacing humour, those crazy British. Uh, a bit of that. But it didn't turn out that way, because no sooner had I done that, than everyone started to take the phrase Grimdark seriously. Nothing to do with me, obviously, but um, it started to become uh, a phrase used about a certain style of fantasy that people really liked. So, uh, it started to be used about Game of Thrones, for example, and, and other such fantasy of the gritty, cynical, dark type, which obviously became quite a significant uh, subclass of epic fantasy, I guess. So yeah, I still find it a, it's not a, a phrase I like a lot. It's not, it's not a, a term that I like, but then it's not up to you what people call you or what you do. It's kind of up to them how they categorise things. And in the end, you know, as with any literary category if it kind of helps a reader find a book that they like then that's all the point it needs to have but i still find it frustrating and a bit silly because people no two people ever mean quite the same thing when they say grimdark it's very ill-defined so as a criticism people will tend to say well grimdark is obviously this or grimdark is obviously that and i'll never use any actual examples of what they mean so you know if they say you know, Grimdark, is, it, it has no hope, it has no humour, it's incredibly solemn and pompous. You kind of think, well, I, I think my stuff does have humour, so you're not talking about my stuff, are you? Or aren't you? I don't know. So I find, I find it hard to know when I'm being insulted or not. And I quite like to know when I'm being insulted, you know, <laughs> so I can feel properly annoyed about it and lose, lose the relevant amount of writing time of my, my hurt and frustration. That's my feeling on Grimdark. Do you think you'll ever change your Twitter handle or is that kind of set in as you're going to keep it now that it's been your established name for a significant period of time now? I think once you've got, I don't think you can change it once you've got the blue, the little blue thingy. Oh, you got the blue thingy. <laughs> I'm not okay. using a blue thingy. No. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to lose the blue Everyone thingy. wants a blue thingy. Don't right. take that away from me. You can't take that away from me. <laughs> so no, I'll probably stick with it now. Uh, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. Well, I think some people see it as, um, uh, may have even seen it as you taking it as uh, you were taking the name as a joke, as you said, kind of making making fun of yourself in a way. And I think some people took that as like, oh, well, Joe Joe has accepted uh, that he is grimdark, so now we will <laughs> now we will accept other people as being grimdark. 
Maybe. Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't give myself that much credit, I don't think. It just kind of, uh, you know, people just accepted it and embraced it in kind of in the way that, I don't know, that gay people embrace the word queer, I think. You know, mm. to begin with, it's a it's an insult and then it becomes a sort of defiant gesture of, yeah, we are this, <laughs> we don't care. You know, you cannot hurt us with your words. And I think uh, so people have accepted it and, you know, they seem to embrace it. Uh, so good on them. So we have definitely, uh, I think, embraced the term, uh, at least for Phil and myself. I mean, this is the podcast for Grimdark is kind of our position. Um, and actually, the show was kind of an extension of our Facebook group, which is Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers. It's got about 900 members. Anytime I post a Joe Abercrombie post, it's just, it's a like fest. Just pew, 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 pew. Um, you get, you're very popular uh, in, in the circle, uh, to say the least. Um, so we actually opened up uh, questions. We were going to bring you on just a couple of questions from the group. We were telling everybody that uh, uh, this uh, author guy from the UK, Joe Abercrombie, is coming on the show. You may have heard of him. Um, do you have any questions that you want to ask? And, of course, they had plenty of questions to ask. So we brought a couple to you today uh, just to uh, have you uh, wax eloquent on a couple of these questions for uh, the members of the group who are uh, big fans of yours. So <clears throat> Lovely. Well, I'll be delighted to uh, answer any questions they may have. So first question is would you ever consider co-writing a novel with someone um just for something a bit different and if yes who would you like to write with no <laughs> <laughs> have i okay. waxed eloquently enough uh, i i don't know um it's not at the front of my list of priorities just because i find the idea of kind of letting someone into the creative process to that degree i say creative process it's not that good, really <laughs> <laughs> of letting someone in and giving someone that much control, really, uh, really difficult to kind of imagine. I'm not massively collaborative. I mean, I like working with editors and I like working with artists and I, you know, I do like collaborating with people. And uh, I used to work as a film editor, and in that job, you've got to sit there with a director and, you know, collaborate on something and, you know, in the end, do as you're told. And doing that job, you know, did make me realise that sometimes, sometimes. People have ideas that are better than your ideas. I know. <laughs> Hard to believe. But it is actually true. And also that listening to other people's ideas can bring out ideas of your own that are better than the ones you had before. So the collaborative process is, is great and good. But I don't think I'd have a lot of trouble giving equal kind of say to someone else. There are many different ways you can collaborate on something. But I think I'd find it tough to do. And obviously, you know, you're plowing an awful lot of time and energy into a book and you know if you're if you're a guy like uh i don't know like brandon samson say who just has a stupendous work rate he could probably you know have three of his own books on the go and collaborate on something as well and you know that that'd be a great little sideline that works and brings in some new readers and uh it's very rewarding as a, as a individual thing for me i'm not that i don't have that kind of ability really to do a lot of different things in parallel and so i'd be giving up one of my own books to collaborate with someone else and I, I just can't see that math ever quite making sense i think it'd just be frustrating for both of us so i'm not sure who that'd be that i'd i'd want to collaborate with because it might be uh, a horrifying thing for them plus you have to split the paycheck <laughs> well yeah you do have to split this paycheck really, yeah which you know no one likes doing that either <laughs> whatever they may say uh, next question yeah. from our uh, Grim Dark Fiction readers and writers uh, group. Um, when world building, how far ahead do you prepare? 
So more in a plotting sense than a world building sense in a way. I mean, certainly I'm not I'm not thinking about what happens to the world after the end of a book, particularly. I mean, a few ideas might come to me, but say when I was writing the first law, I didn't th- I wasn't thinking much about you know what my next books would be or how the world would develop thereafter. I was thinking about getting to the end of that and closing it out in the way that I wanted. When you come to write a new book, obviously you then extrapolate the threads from one before if it's if it's taking the timeline onwards. Uh, in terms of the plotting and the planning of a of a series. I will tend, at least these days, to have a basic notion of what the overall shape of a book is going to be. Usually that means splitting it into parts. Best of Cold, say, is in seven parts. Uh, Half a King is in four. Uh, the Heroes is in five. That is dictated by the, the days of the battle. So the various different ways of splitting it into parts. Uh, and then I'll be thinking about you know the, the macro arcs, the big arcs of the book. You know, So, say, in Best of Cold... One of the big arcs is that, or two of the big arcs, are that Monza, the central character, appears to be extremely ruthless. Spoiler warning, by the way. Appears to be extremely ruthless at the start. By the end, appears to be slightly less ruthless. Or at least we have come to see some of their actions in a different light because of what we've learned. While at the same time, Shivers, who starts off being a nice guy, ends up being a little less nice. So those are the kind of the two complementary arcs that are running through the whole book among the, along with other things but then there's also seven parts and within each part you know it has its own shape and its own action and drama that's going on so i've planned the overall shape of the book i've got an idea i've got an idea who the characters are and obviously those two things complement each other very closely it's important to have those two working together and then you're breaking it into parts and usually i'll have a notion of what the setting of a part will be what the action of a part will be how i want those central arcs to develop and how I want to give them their own little shape and perhaps their own climax, their own really dramatic moment towards the end. So you want them building in pace and having a kind of a pace and a shape. I mean, a lot of this I've learned over time through trial and error. So, for instance, the blade itself doesn't have all the virtues of structure and pace I might desire, let's say. By before they're hanged, I think I've got a lot better at that. So you've got the book and its shape and its overall arc. You've split it into parts. I'll then plan the first part, the one I'm about to write, in quite a lot of detail. Often that means writing a kind of side of A4 type plan for every chapter. After a period where I'm kind of thinking, right, what's the action I'm covering? Where am I going to put my points of view, my characters in order to cover that action? What's going to be happening to them? What's their drama and their own concerns? So I'm kind of interleaving the characters uh, in such a way that I can cover the action I want to have in a part. When I get to the end of the first part, planned it, I then write it. And then I have this this moment of kind of thinking, oh, usually what I'm thinking is, this book is really shit. That's usually what I'm thinking at that stage. Because for some reason, I hate everything that I'm writing, and afterwards I come to love it, uh, after it's finished. So I'm thinking this book is terrible. What do I need to do to improve this book? And I'll have some ideas now about what's worked, what hasn't worked, how the characters maybe need to change. With luck, their voices are starting to develop a bit more past, past the bland. And so I'll have a better idea where I'm going when I come to plan the second part of the book. Uh, And then I'll write that. And then by the time I get to the end of the second part, I'm thinking, this book is even worse than I thought it was going to be. But I have some ideas what I can do. I will forge ahead desperately. And by the end of the third part, I may be starting to think, ah, it's coming together a little bit now. And I'll write that fourth part nice and fast. And it'll be, wow, this fourth part, it all works. Now I know what I need to do. And then it's a case of going back and revising and going over and bringing the early parts into line with the kind of vision I've developed by the last one. And often during, it's really that period of revision once I've finished the first draft, 
did I really start a to like what I'm doing and b to really make progress and to work very consistently uh, put a lot of hours in and I'll go through a kind of a set of different drafts the first one I'll focus on the central characters and their voices and the kind of key arcs and making those make sense. So, you know, a central character might need to be more ruthless early on, say, to make something more dramatic later, or they might need to be nicer, or they might need to have a slightly different tone in the way they their, their thoughts work. So I'll concentrate on the central characters. Then I'll have a, a pass where I try and give every secondary character a kind of more distinctive voice, more distinctive features. So rather than do a bland and average and obvious kind of action in, in, in their dialogue, like raise their eyebrows. My characters raise their eyebrows a lot, a lot of eyebrow work there in the first draft. Eyebrows will be removed and replaced with a wave of the hand, or I don't know, not that, but something uh, uh, idiosyncratic and fascinating, hopefully, that gives you an insight into a character. And then I'll do a pass where you're looking at the setting and trying to do the same thing with the setting to give each scene its own tone, its own weather, its own light, its own feel, some detail to a room that gives it something interesting and distinctive. And possibly that will then strike some thought from a central character, which will cause a line of dialogue, which will strike something from a secondary character, which will help to distinguish them. So it's this kind of righteous cycle of taking the, the bland and the obvious that I've just slapped in and trying to make it more distinctive, more individual, trying to give it some something that feels honest and, and, and concrete, you know? And then I'll have a pass-through where I just deal with the language and try and make it as readers as well and as effectively as I can. And then I'll uh, feel like killing myself, probably. <laughs> and that's it. have to go to the editor and be, be kind of torn <laughs> up and then the process sort of starts again. Books, you know the, the famous phrase that uh, works of art are never uh, finished, they're only abandoned... It often feels like that with books, you know, you can go on endlessly, you can go on endlessly revising and there is no point at which you won't find new things to change, especially if you were to put a book down for six months. If you finished editing it, put it down for six months and came back, you'd suddenly see all these other things you wanted to change and do differently, if only because you're not the same person you were before and your taste might have shifted slightly. So you can never finish something, you just have to reach a point where you say, okay, diminishing returns, that's enough now. And, you know, uh, I'm not someone who wants to dwell on things infinitely. I want to I wanna get them off my desk and move on, generally, by that point. Fascinating. It sounds like you kind of hate the book for the first six months, and then you start to turn the curve and start to like it when it starts to come together. A just, bit more. Yeah, and, and, and that's always been the, the pattern of me. Well, ever since I finished my first trilogy, you know, when I started writing Best of Cold, I was... Uh, I had a real a terrible crisis of confidence with that book. I think, uh, you know, I got faster and faster writing The First Law. I'd got more and more comfortable with those characters. I could kind of slip into their skins very easily and start writing from their point of view and the language would be there and the patterns of speech and I'd know exactly who they were, how they'd react to things. <clears throat> and it was kind of effortless, you know, putting them in a room with someone else and they'd, they'd strike the right sparks from each other. It'd all be easy. And, you know, I'd thought about how the shape of that series and I'd built the towers and now I just had to knock the towers down. So... It was very straightforward. I think Last Argument of Kings took about 14 months to write. It was quite quick for me. And then when it came to Best of Cold, I was expecting, well, this one's going to be easier still because I'm getting better and better. Woo, go me. And then um, I, I was just found I had no idea who the people were, although I knew the basic things about them, you know, what their history was, their role in the story. They just had no personality. A couple of them worked fine straight away, but... You know, others, it took the length of the book, really, for me to start to think, OK, I know what I'm doing here. I know who this person needs to be. And so that was, you know, a useful experience to see that 
every book's its own set of challenges, you know, and you never feel totally confident and comfortable when you start something. It takes a good amount of time to feel like you really know the people and you know where you're going. Yeah. So whenever I'm writing, I'm always, you know, second guessing and thinking, is this any good? Is this any good? Uh, and it's not until, as I say, I get to the end that I'm usually thinking, you know what? It's getting there. This will be all right. I mean, that's one thing that um, has given me confidence myself as a writer is is uh, hearing experienced writers talk about their process. And you you had said at the early stage, you feel like everything is shit. And I, I hear a lot of newer writers always say that kind of thing. Oh, this is this is shitty. And then I got a better idea. I'm going to write the better idea. And, and you've always got to be uh, receptive to the better idea, without a doubt, because they don't like very often, <laughs> yeah. uh, as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, yeah, you've always got to be looking for ways to improve. But I think also, what I've also learned, I mean, when I, when I first started writing, I, as I say, would go over and over and over things. I'd literally start a writing session by picking apart the few paragraphs I'd written the night before and rewriting them, thinking about them, getting into the feel of the character before moving ahead and writing a, a few more paragraphs, you know. So I was constantly picking over everything. You know, when I finish a chapter, I'd go straight over it, and then I'd go over it again, I'd go over it again. So that was very time-consuming, but very valuable, and, and you know, it was, it was useful in learning how I needed to write, what I needed to say, what I could get away with not saying. But over time, I've become much quicker, and, you know, I, I'll dash through a first draft much more and just slap it down, really. And as soon as I finish a chapter, I can't wait to, you know, throw it away and get on to the next thing. And then when I come back to it, I'll have a much better idea of where I'm going. And that can be quite dispiriting in a way to think I've written 10 chapters and they're shit. They're pretty bad. And I know they're bad, but it's better for me to just crash ahead and understand where I'm going so that I can go back and revise it once rather than having to revise it five times, you know? So I think that's the kind of confidence that comes with just having done it before and knowing that in the end, you'll have to revise it a lot to make it good. Reading your own old books is always very dispiriting because you read them and you think, my God, I used to be good. <laughs> well, hopefully you do anyway. I'll read my, you know, I'll pick up a book and I'll start reading it. I'll be like, wow, this is, wow. I wish I was as good as this because the stuff I'm writing now is fucking awful. <laughs> well, you know, the script, right it's always bad and, and when you come to a book that's been revised and gone over and edited and thought about carefully you know of course it feels it feels better and more more comfortable i'm kind of interested in the way i, I see you talk about things in your blog sometimes because you often talk about video games a lot on your blog and i think a lot of uh, writers think sometimes that all writers do is just write and they don't really do anything else they just sit in a dungeon or whatever and just write all the time but you obviously have you know other extracurricular activities you enjoy such as video games you often blog about the recent video games that you've played i think one thing i would love to see at some point and i'm sure people have mentioned this is to see a first law uh game that in the vein of like a dragon age or a uh, elder scrolls style kind of game where you could you, you could be a Northman or you could be someone from the Union or you could be Gurkish or you could be whatever. Do you see any kind of project like that ever happening? And and has there been any kind of discussion about doing games in the future at all? Not really. I mean, a, a couple of, yeah, I mean, a few, a few of the most sort of basic uh, first approaches and so on. None of it's gone anywhere. I think um, it's a difficult one, uh, games, because writers aren't particularly in charge of that industry, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Right, writers are not at the heart of the gaming industry. It's a, it's 
controlled by designers and um, the needs of the of constructing the game, narrative is almost always very much the second consideration, if you like. Um, still, writers get paid well and get treated well within their industry, but they're not. They don't have a huge amount of power or a huge amount of respect necessarily. It's very different to say TV. Uh, I mean, in, in a way, film writers don't have a huge amount of power there either. It's sort of the director's medium there. But in TV, it is the writer's medium very much. So the people with the power in the TV series are the key writers, the showrunner, the series producers who are doing, you know, running the writer's room in effect. So, and obviously as a book writer, you are, you know, the you are God <laughs> to a degree. So, you know, you have to answer to an editor and to your readers, but you have an awful lot of power and, an awful lot of flexibility. So I think to go to a game and, you know, work as a writer there is not something that massively appeals to me. Uh, it'd be certainly interesting to see what a really great workshop did with a game. I think uh, it's always difficult when you have a, a property that is adapted, though. Very rarely do those make good games. I'm sure we've all played some not very good film tie-in video games. And generally speaking, you know, film tie-in games are always awful. And the best games tend to be ones that are based around new properties or their own properties or, you know, even something like The Witcher, which obviously is based around uh, Sapkowski's books, which are hugely successful in uh, Eastern Europe and, and Spain and so on. You know, he's, he's a big writer without a doubt, but they don't have a kind of big film property that they're enthralled to. You know, they've kind of done that adaptation as a game with the shackles off. So I think it's always, it's always a bit of a difficult one to take on and you've got to have the right offer from the right people. In a way, well, I would love to see, you know, CG Project Red that they do the uh, Witcher series. Yeah, that that would be an awesome choice, I think, because the the first Law World is so huge, and from I haven't played Witcher three yet, but um, I've heard that that world is very expansive and it covers right. a lot so, of area. It's great, yeah, very good, good game. And speaking of diversifying your writing repertoire. We've had a few authors on the show, including uh, Michael J. Sullivan, who's achieved uh, success as a hybrid author. And as far as, as publishing goes, Joe, do you have any plans of pursuing any other forms of publication, or do you see yourself just kind of sticking with uh, traditional publishing? Yeah, I, I mean, again, I think never say never. Um, it would sort of just depend. I, I suppose I you know, got into the business at a time when self-publishing was a, a – it was possible, but it was a really tough option to kind of go and get your own books printed and hawk those books to booksellers. I mean, that was – very very different time so i didn't have the necessity to try and self-publish and and i think the thing about self-publishing is it's a big job the writers who do well self-publishing are people who take it very seriously as a business who put a lot of effort into all those elements of design and maybe the marketing and the publicity and the managing their relationships with amazon and the other sellers you know they're people who take it seriously and who are very good at it there's this mistaken idea I'll write my book and I'll just toss it on Amazon and people will flock towards me and that just ain't going to happen. And the thing is that, you know, luckily for me, I'm, I'm kind of in a position where I can I can get things published, I can get publishers to listen to me, I can get a certain amount of attention and marketing and effort and I can, you know, make enough money to work full-time as a writer. And so I'm not in a position of needing to self-publish and I suppose if I was going to self-publish, I'd need to be taking on an awful lot of work that the publisher does quite well you know in a way i don't think i could brief a better cover than the cover designers do i don't think i could get a better deal out of waterstones than my publisher does so in a sense you accept they're going to take 
a certain amount of the revenue in return for which they do quite a lot of work a lot better than you could. So for myself, it still makes sense to kind of publish traditionally. I know a lot of people are very uh, down on traditional publishing and regard traditional publishing as very kind of parasitic and, and all those things. But, you know, publishing has been fantastic for me. I can't complain. So why, why would I not continue to do what's already worked? And I think, you know, in the end, it's, it's very hard if you're self-published to kind of get past a certain point. It's very hard to achieve any success anyway, of course it is. But uh, also I think a lot of, you know, self-published successes will eventually find publishers to some degree or another. They'll eventually look to be traditionally published, even if it's in translation, if it's in, you know, they'll, they'll find different ways to get published. So I, I just wouldn't ever see the need to be self-published myself. But I've got great admiration for people who can make a success of it because it's a, it's a hugely skilled and, and difficult task, as I say. And it's, it's also, it's very good that, you know, that option's there. I think that's good for everyone because it means that writers have other ways of getting to market. It means that publishers have more competition. And so I think it's just a, a healthy development altogether. I, I, th- I think perhaps the, the relationship with Amazon is potentially a bit of a problem in the sense that there's the risk that Amazon becomes the whole shooting match, the whole game. And uh, to not publish through Amazon becomes very very difficult and i think that would be potentially a bit of a, a problem as any as any monopoly is a problem but you know at the moment i think we've got quite a healthy situation what do you think about amazon opening brick and mortar stores <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of bizarre in a way isn't it it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like sauron uh, conquers minus Tirith and you know destroys gondor and then he drums his fingers for a minute and goes you know what i'm gonna build a new minus Tirith. <laughs> yeah. because I like the one they had before you know I like certain things about it mine's going to be black but it's sort of the same idea um, so it's sort of bizarre I suppose mm. it always did occur to me in a way that you know Amazon had a bit of a parasitic relationship with brick and mortar stores because the stores brought the product into people's mind and I think a lot of people use the bookstore as a kind of browsing place a showroom and would then go and order off Amazon you know as brick and mortar stores have failed and disappeared, I think, you know, Amazon has kind of cut off its own supply in a way. I think there'll always be a need for that brick and mortar store where people can uh, go and browse. Um, but it seems as though, at least in the UK, I don't know, I know the bookselling's in, in a pretty dire state in the US as well, but in the UK it was in a very dire state for a while and now, um, you know, Waterstones are with a big uh, chain, book, bookshop chain here, seem to have pulled things back a little bit and are, and are not in the same trouble they were. And I think have modernized and, and got a more sustainable model. Uh, so I think there's still a place for, for booksellers. You know, if Amazon can open bookshops and, and run them effectively and profitably, then good luck to them. I mean, it's all, it's all good as far as I'm concerned. I'd like to see as many outlets for books as possible. Ideally carrying Joe Abercrombie books. <laughs> well, that goes without saying. I mean, they'd be throat <laughs> if they didn't do that. It'd be a laughing stock. Although, of course, often my books have just sold out. I mean, that, does, that happens frequently. frequently demand is so high well i wanted to ask you something about cursing because uh cursing is something that i think uh your characters talk very colorfully to say the least if you could tell us what 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 would be your favorite curse word for your for either you to use personally or for your your characters to use in your stories oh uh, well fuck is the uh, is is the finest word in the english language right (laughs) it's a hugely versatile and effective word it's also a very old and long-established word. 
Um, people have a very funny idea sometimes with anachronism. I mean, anachronism is a weird idea altogether in fantasy because it's an invented world. Are they speaking in English? Do we think that hobbits speak in English? Or do we think it's somehow translated in some kind of way? It's, it's weird, right? I mean, elves don't speak in English. They speak elvish. But hobbits speak English. Do we think they speak English? The whole idea of language and, and what is anachronistic, what is strange, is, is this weird alchemy and balancing act of uh, just a kind of a, a secret handshake between writer and reader to accept that we're not going to regard this at all as ridiculous somehow. So what makes a bit of dialogue believable, what makes the use of a certain word believable or not, is a very strange area altogether, uh, one that I'm probably not very well uh, qualified to talk about. But for me, anyway, I suppose I read... You know, Tolkien dominated very much the way that fantasy was written when I was growing up, I think. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that was very much in the shadow of Tolkien that tried to imitate Tolkien, that tried to out-Tolkien Tolkien in its elaborateness <laughs> of world-building and in its kind of, you know, the, the, the way the morality was constructed was very sub-Lord of the Rings, if you like. And Tolkien is amazing and, you know, a huge influence for me and, and I love Lord of the Rings and all those things. But uh, he, he has quite a... He deliberately went for quite a, a ponderous, um, serious uh, way of talking. You know, he was imitating a kind of uh, medieval diction, I suppose, to a degree. And people in imitating that, I think, have written some really terrible Prithi Malige Lord style dialogue. You know, hey, nonny, nonny. If hey, <laughs> the orcs approacheth. Hey, nonny, nonny, here come the orcs. You know, verily. So all of that I, I'm not a fan of. I, I suppose I started reading things like LA Confidential and, um, you know, uh, James Elroy, writers, writers of that kind, thrillers and westerns, where people speak in this, you know, in, in a sharp, modern kind of style. And I just found that felt much more honest to me, felt much more real and kind of believable. And so when I came to try, kind of try and write fantasy myself, I wanted it to have a sense of real people talking to real people, not, you know, cardboard cutouts, quaffing to one another kind of pigeon Shakespeare that doesn't make any sense even. I, I, I wanted it to feel honest, you know, and to pretend you're not a modern person talking to modern readers. I just kind of find that artifice a bit insulting and frustrating. It can be done well, you know, don't get me wrong, it can be done well, but it's often not. And I would rather fail at writing in my own honest voice than, you know, try and fake it myself. It's that fakery I find really annoying. And to me, it felt as though, you know, okay, you're writing often very violent people who've lived quite violent lives, often in extremely dangerous situations. I swear a lot when I'm making toast. <laughs> so for people who, for, for kind of murderers who are killing someone to be keeping it PG seems to me a bit absurd or certainly a bit weird, you know? And so I always just felt that the, the people should swear a lot. And that it was a fundamental part of the way that people talk to each other. And, you know, you don't want everyone within a book to have exactly the same tone. You don't want everyone to be swearing their heads off the whole time. You don't want the uh, the ambassador who arrived to, to speak to his majesty to go, fucking hell, your majesty. <laughs> Prince of Florence is fucking pissed with you. He's going to talk in a way that makes sense for an ambassador. But at the same time, when you've got, you know, a load of mercenaries down the tavern it kind of makes sense that they're going to use the full range of human expression. And after all, you know, a lot of our oldest and proudest words with the longest traditions are swear words. And often the more offensive they are, the older and deeper rooted they are within our culture. So I think 
if you're writing adult fiction for adults, there's just no reason not to use them, to my mind. I would always that- like to see a hobbit, uh, hobbit say fuck. Yeah. Time, well, time for a fucking second breakfast. They would be, wouldn't they? They would be. They're kind of, you know, they're earthy yeoman. Yeah. Sam should be telling Gollum, fuck off, Gollum. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Quit eating all the elf crackers or whatever. <laughs> Trust this motherfucker, you should be saying. I can't see. I often think that'd be, uh, that'd be better, you know. Thou shalt not fucking pass. <laughs> that'd be kind of funny, right? Maybe not there. <laughs> now I want to watch the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy over and just intersperse curse words through the whole thing. Should be. I mean, I you know I don't want to take the mick too much because you, you uh, there's a, a place for that solemnity and you know Lord of the Rings has an incredible sense of of power and uh, a majesty and and there's there's an amazing atmosphere to to a lot of that book which I absolutely love. But I don't think it's the only way to do things, that's all. It's not a a bad way to do things, it's a wonderful way, but I think there's other ways to do things to achieve different effects. And why shouldn't you also try that? Let a thousand flowers bloom and a hundred schools of thought contend. Or whatever Mao said shortly before murdering all his critics. Okay, so we call this the bloodiest nine. We will have two characters, one from the first law universe and one from another universe. And what happens if the two meet each other? Will they fight each other? Will they shake hands? Will they play a rousing game of tiddlywinks? What shall happen? So let's give Joe, our esteemed guest, the first confrontation, which is probably fairly predictable. Um, But let's do it anyway. Number one. Logan Ninefingers versus Conan the Barbarian. Logan Ninefingers versus Conan. I think I think Logan would just let Conan get on with it. I mean, if we're talking, you know, Blade itself era Conan, I think Logan would just keep his head down. You know, he, he probably likes keeping his head down. Uh, he's not he's not that type of guy. If it's early era Logan when he's still wanting to prove a point, then uh, you know I, I fear for Conan, frankly. You know, because Conan he, he's got no sense of humour, has he? He's not really, he's not very self-aware. I think he'd probably get outfoxed with Conan, for my money. Okay, number two is Jezel Dan Luther versus Inigo Montoya of The Princess Bride, two fabulous swordsmen. Oh, well, Jezel would, uh, would think he would win that one by a mile, and then he'd be, uh, he'd be beaten almost straight away. Maybe he'd get to the kind of, I have a surprise for you, <laughs> I have a whatever it is uh, that he says. That was a... Almost like having a Spaniard in the room with you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Montoya would definitely get the better of Jezal because, you know, Jezal's just a complete ass. Or perhaps Bayaz would be out of sight somewhere and would uh, fix the whole thing for him with magic. Okay, and then third one. Uh, this one is a bit unbalanced, so maybe this... <laughs> maybe it is. I, I'm not sure. Pharaoh Maljin versus uh, Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. Versus Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. <laughs> Yes, I think Luke Skywalker is just too too nice a guy to to he, he won't he would never turn to the dark side. Luke Skywalker, he just won't do it. So I think he'd he'd simply uh, I think he'd already be dead by that point. <laughs> you know, the world would just have taken its toll on him. I think he'd have become depressed. He'd have gone to drinking. He'd got <laughs> overweight, uh, and he'd just be he'd, he'd be scratching out hand to mouth existence by that stage. So uh, she'd just walk past, you wouldn't even notice. That's, that's my feeling. <laughs> okay. Next one are two characters from uh, similar universes, I believe. 
Wirren of Bly versus Geralt of Rivia of The Witcher fame. Yeah, I mean, I think I, well, I think the smart man would have to be on Geralt because of his range of powers, his range of powers and, and options. But you know, I think those two would probably get on. They've both got quite a wry, sideways look at the world. I think they'd probably uh, <clears throat> decide to team up, decide to team up to uh, find high adventure somewhere off uh, in the in the lost west of the world. That's my guess. Yeah, I don't think they'd fight. I don't think they're hard to be in it. Cool. Okay, next one is uh, Bayaz. Uh, versus Gandalf of Lord of the Rings fame. Well, you've got two of two of uh, fantasy fiction's most powerful villains there, of course. I think uh, you see. I think Gandalf's weakness is that he thinks he's in the right always, and I think uh, his towering self-righteousness. Beaz would find a way to use that against him. I think although Gandalf has the magical edge, Beaz has the advantage in ruthlessness. So I think uh, yeah, Beaz would have outmaneuvered Gandalf in one way or another into some kind of trap within a trap within a trap. Gandalf has eagles also. Yeah, then probably the eagles would come and save him then in that case. <laughs> Fucking eagles. Fucking eagles. Always an eagle. Yeah. <laughs> okay, six are two mercenaries, Nicomo uh, Casca versus Bronn of Game of Thrones. Oh, well, those two would get along fucking famously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they just, well, I mean, you know, Assuming they could be asked to leave whatever tavern they were in to find the other one, I think uh, you know they'd just uh, prop the bar up and reminisce over old old war stories, wine, women, and song. That'd be their thing. Oh, I think they'd they'd get along famously, them too. Okay, how about Shy South from Red Country and Imperior Imperi? I don't even know how to say this. Imperiator Furiosa from Mad Max. Yeah, I think they'd get along pretty nicely, actually. Yeah, I think they probably would. Uh, I think Furiosa would probably um, recruit her to the the feminist cause. Would be my guess, because uh, you know Shy is uh, someone who professes to have a, a hard exterior, but is actually quite principled and uh, does the decent thing generally. So I think uh, she'd probably fuss and be upset about you know helping out and the risk and all that and and make a big mess of it. And then in the end, she'd do the decent thing and she'd she'd be on the war rig. Next to Furiosa, yeah. That's my guess. And probably be There's not a lot of blood in this bloodiest yeah. nine, Philip. <laughs> That's no. well, it's it's the uh it's the confrontation, the the meeting the meeting of two great characters in history. Mm-hmm. Last two. Okay, uh your two new characters I'm gonna mispronounce this again. <laughs> Fuck, I'm bad at pronouncing things. <laughs> ja- you said it a couple times. Jav Javra. Javra and Shiva. Daya, yeah, versus their mirror, Fafrid and the Grey Mouser. What would happen with those characters? <laughs> uh, well, uh, that that would almost certainly be an orgy, which uh, <laughs> watch in in disgust. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I mean, they're you know they're they're big uh, womanizers, aren't they? And Java is the exact same thing. She's a big manizer, so. Uh, yeah, that that definitely be the outcome of that. I, I fear. Yeah, more non-violence. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I recommend everyone to go read Two's Company because there's, yeah, <laughs> part of what Joe just said is involved. Well, yeah, exactly. Similar outcome is my guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then the last one, Monza Mercato from Best Served Cold versus a Deathclaw from Fallout Universe. <laughs> 
Well, I suppose the problem you've always got there is that you know uh, you, you you don't really have the weaponry, do you? You don't have the advanced weaponry that's required. I suppose it would depend on the amount of planning that could go into it, because uh, you know Monza's pretty single-minded and has the the planning chops and the ruthlessness to deal with pretty much any opponent given the right circumstances. So, uh, as a master tactician, I think she'd make the she, she'd bring the death claw on and use the terrain to her advantage and drop it into a pit or something of, of like type. So I think she'd uh, I think she'd prevail, Monza actually against the death claw. To be honest, I didn't find the death claws that testing this time around. Oh really. Yeah, a couple of shots with the old railgun, and it was a uh, good night from the death claws. That's true, pretty much everything. What was difficult in Fallout, then, if not the death claws? Anything? And none of it was that difficult. I found it generally a little bit too easy, I've got to say, this time around. Yeah, that was my one of my criticisms of it, actually, was that it got a little bit easier over time. It was difficult to begin with. Um, it, had, it had a few tough moments, but then it, it started to get a bit easy. But that's often my problem with uh, adventure-style games. You kind of spend all this time building your character up and improving your powers in order to basically make the game quite boring for yourself. It's a slightly odd irony of those games that, you know, the more you play them, the better you get and the less interesting it becomes. Well, I like the way this, uh, this turned out because we have made a lot of new friends and we had an orgy and <laughs> which we is had a lot of people drinking, which is always good. Yeah, everything turned out pretty good. Nice. Big orgy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Lord Grimdark, uh, that concludes our interview for today. Thanks so much for hanging out on the show for us. Uh, figured we'd do the customary close and ask you for your contact information and where our listeners can find you online. Your listeners already know where to find me. <laughs> um, I am at uh, www.joeabercrombie.com, although I'm uh, not as active on the old blog as I used to be because it's kind of the... Uh, the communication method of yesteryear slightly now, isn't mm -hmm. it, compared to where it was. And uh, I'm on Facebook. I think there's a Jabba Crombie page there, though I'm not particularly uh, active personally on there. And I'm um, on Twitter, uh, at Lord Grimdark. Uh, that is where you will find me. And then any plans on heading to the U.S. anytime soon? Um, no, not immediate ones. No, none, that are, none that are scheduled in. Um, I'm touring in the U.K. in April uh, when Sharpens comes out. But, uh, yeah, no U.S. plans at the moment. I did a lot of traveling last year, so I'm kind of uh, trying to um, knuckle down a bit this year and not do so much and spend a bit of time actually at my desk doing what I'm known for, which is writing stuff. That's the plan. Cool. Well, Sharp Ends drops April 26th in the U.K. and the U.S., 13 short stories in the first all universe. Everybody be sure to head out and pick up 17 copies oh, yeah. and give them to your friends. Lovely. Lord Grimdark, continue to hold your scepter high as the lord and king of all Grimdark and all fantasy awesomeness. Thank you so much for hanging out on the show today, and best of luck to you with all the awesomeness you have coming up. And maybe you can join us again when the uh, new series drops in 2017. Maybe. It's been a pleasure to be here thanks a lot guys keep podcasting yes we shall <laughs> soldier forth we will go forth for you Joe Abercrombie verily 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 Thanks for listening to part two of our interview with Joe Abercrombie. Be sure to pick up your copy of his new short story collection Sharp Ends available April 26th You can find us online at facebook.com slash the grim tidings podcast or on twitter at grimdarkfiction Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. And be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. 
On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Podcasting.